0: Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet-Karnak.
1: I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson.
0: This week, we talk about what just happened in Madrid at COP25. And we bring you an interview with filmmaker Richard Curtis. Thanks for being here. Okay, guys, so this is effectively the morning after, the morning after, the morning after. Hangovers are still in place a bit. After the negotiations, um, there's also been an election, but we're not going to talk about that today. Um, so what we'd like to do in this episode is to co- kind of begin to dig, to, to dig into how should we think about what just happened in Madrid? Um, there's a lot of hand-wringing. There's a lot of anxiety. Some of it is probably well-placed. Other parts of it are no doubt an overreaction, but we'll dig into all of that.
2: But I just wanted to start... Sorry, I mean you're referring to the Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC that just completed in Madrid. Gotcha.
0: Thank you, Paul. I I confess to living so firmly within this world sometimes that maybe I don't contextualise it. I appreciate you saying that. Um, So, to just start us off, um, I wanted to read a selection of the top news items that are currently coming up on Google if you search for COP25. And, you know, I think you'll see a trend. Um, So, there are words like... COP25 ends in staggering failure. Climate negotiation ends in sad sputter. Another year for the climate negotiations, was anything achieved? Key summit fails. Staggering failure of climate negotiations. Gross dereliction of duty. Climate conference falls short. You get the picture. Um, The media seem to be united in their condemnation of what just happened. But actually, like so often at this point it's kind of difficult to see through the myriad of what went on to really get a sense of what are the core issues, why didn't they move, and where should we be? So, Christiana, I think it's you know, only right that you kind of kick off here. Um, what are you feeling and how should we think about this?
1: Well, it's actually a conversation that um, can be a very long conversation, and one can get into different levels of technicalities around this, but to keep it relatively short and somewhat irresponsibly um, superficial without going into detail, um, a couple of thoughts to share. The first is the honest realization that this was not, ever was intended to be, an earth-shattering summit. It is, it took place in the form and within the procedures and the rules and procedures of an international, i.e. multilateral negotiation, because that's what the UNFCCC is, but actually there was very little to negotiate There were two main topics. One is carbon markets, and the other is support to those countries that will have long-term negative effects from climate change. But that's it. It doesn't mean that those two are not important. It just means that there were only two issues to really to negotiate. Um, And just for comparison, in, in Paris, we had at least 65 different issues under negotiation. So... Um, it, it, was not an, er, it was, it was never intended and never scheduled to be an earth-shattering negotiation. In the worst of all cases, let me say, if for XYZ reason that Conference of the Parties had been canceled, postponed until next year, or, you know, whatever, it, it wouldn't have been a, a drama for the climate process. Um, Now, the fact that it took place is because it was scheduled to take place, and these yearly conferences are scheduled to take place. So since it had to take place, unless all governments had agreed to something different, um, the one thing that was actually most critical was for countries, not as a negotiation, as the result of a negotiation, but as the result of their individual conviction and technological and economic progress along the lines of carbonization, that they would have come out more governments to say, yes, we understand that next year, 2020, is the year in which we have to come around the table and increase our decarbonization targets. Now, that is not the result of a negotiation. That is each country individually. So that didn't happen. A, because it wasn't obligatory for it to happen, but also because there were three large countries, the United States, Australia, and Brazil that were quite opposed to it. Um, And that is understandable given the leadership that each of those three countries is under um, right now. So, you know, one way of looking at this, and there are a thousand different ways, and I, I think it would, it would be time well spent um, next year, Tom and Paul, to to gather some opinions about um, about the COP, because everybody will have their own viewpoint. But one way, and this is not my only, it's just the one that I want to volunteer today, is to say, well, interestingly enough, the absence, if you will, of a critical number of issues that had to be negotiated, the absence of that opened the space to form or to tone more than to substance, because substance was actually quite thin, Mm. if you compare it to other annual conferences. And so because the substance was so thin, it opened the space for a concentration and to use that platform for a change of tone, uh, in the negotiations. And that change of tone was definitely toward anger, toward blaming toward obstructionism, a whole host of what I would call negative energies that were injected into that space that perhaps would have been mitigated had there been enough substance to actually deal with. But it is ironic that a summit that had very little summit, very little substance to it, actually turned out to be the longest cop in history that's really ironic yeah. and that should tell us something right because they weren't really looking at the issues themselves it was a huge platform with an incredible amount of press and press and media attention um that was given to how do people feel about climate change? What are the political wins on climate change? What is the youth movement saying? What are NGOs saying? What are the different governments saying? What is the um, What are corporations saying? But all of that is tonal, if you will. Um, and it's not substance, substance with respect if the context of this is negotiations. Now, fascinating that actually, what, from the perspective of negotiation, is tone from the reality of the world is actually substance. Mm. And what I mean by that is that this year we were in this strange place in which we knew ahead of time that there wouldn't be too much political advance on the part of national governments for the reasons I have mentioned. But the fact is, there's a heck of a lot that is going on on addressing climate change, on mitigation, on adaptation, on shifting finance flows, a heck of a lot that is going on in the real world, in the real economy. And those negotiations do not reflect the real world or the real economy. So um, much of what was played out there uh, actually is a, a, a view, a window into the real economy with the exception that what overtook was the negativity in the real world. And I think we have to be honest enough to say in the real world, we have both negativity and positivity, right? That's why we call ourselves outrage and optimism, because there are a lot of negative things going on, such as science becoming more granular, the urgency, the emergency becoming much, much more visible and much more palpable. At the same time, there is so much going on with corporations, financial institutions, city governments, state governments that are actually really engaging with this and that balanced view of the urgency of science and what the real economy and the real world are really doing was not visible in the cop because it was a you know it was a completely different view on the world so i don't think it was a failure um it, it was just a very strange window uh, and an incomplete window, a completely incomplete window into what is really going on in the overall and the important and the most important issue on climate change, which is how are we doing on our um, emission reductions? We're not doing well, but we are definitely doing much better than we were. And that is not the tone that came out of Madrid.
2: So can I please just make a special? message to our listeners that is why you should listen to outrage and optimism that is the most brilliant analysis of the cop I have read or come across uh, thank you Christiana most enlightening
0: it's I, I think it's it's so interesting I mean in in a way it's kind of set up to fail right because I mean lots of cops are not going to move the needle forward politically because you can't move the needle forward politically every year. We're on these five-yearly cycles, etc. But the world points to them and the world's media points to them and says, is the world going to sort it out and actually do something about climate change? And now, particularly, when you have what is largely a procedural COP focused on what are, at the end of the day, details, very important details, but they're not big political decisions combined with this kind of yawning... I mean, I was only there for a few days in the first week, so I wasn't there when it it sort of started to to turn out as it did. But even then, you could feel the massive gulf between the formal process and the things they were focused on, which were kind of the, the development and the ironing out of diplomatic details, and the kind of out, upwelling of anger and it's not enough, etc., that obviously exploded in the second week in a big way. And that yawning gap... Has kind of gotten so big. Do you think it's possible for a cop to sort of succeed against those sorts of expectations that we're well? What I I
1: think is important is to understand that. Um, the ad- addressing climate change is not only the result of these formal negotiations; it's much more complex than that. Um, and and to venture even a simplification of that, let's you know, let me put out the visual image that what what we have been seeing for several decades and will continue to see for the next few decades is a um, a self reinforcing cycle. Um, that moves through different points in that cycle and that is always moving up. That cycle is, so it's not a circle at one level, it's actually several levels because it's always moving up in improvement, gradually, slowly, way too slowly. But there's several points in that cycle where um, certainly in December of 2015, when governments took the very ambitious and very courageous step of agreeing to um, a, a visionary legal structure that is going to accompany them for several decades, it was definitely clear that the governments were in the lead at that moment. The reason why the governments could take the lead is because we had just developed over the past two to three years, before that, a leadership on the part of non-governments, of private sector investors, cities. They had been in the lead and they gave the sense of comfort to national governments to be able to sort of take the fast lane, overtake um, on the fast lane and adopt something that was more ambitious, actually, even than the investors and the corporates and anybody else thought was possible. And now we're on the other side of the cycle. Now we're on the cycle where governments did their job in 2015. Now, for the past few years, we have been seeing every day there is news of one more bank or one more um, insurance company or one more corporation that is actually understanding that they have to decarbonize their operations and help their peers decarbonize. And so the action is over there on that side. Mm. And enough of that has to happen to be able to then follow the cycle all the way around for national governments with the right political leadership, by the way, to be able to have the comfort level of then being ambitious again. So, you know, this was a cop, yes, it's the cops of the national governments. But honestly, if you look at this as a historical evolution, it wasn't their turn to be ambitious. We are still in that phase in which those who really need to do their homework are the non-national governments,
2: and they are doing it. And, uh you know, I think that the uh, a, a job of the media I was once told is to kind of simplify and exaggerate, and I have a sense that uh, the. Conference of the Parties, COP25, COP whatever it is, is, has become a bit of a lightning conductor for the whole world's kind of anxiousness about climate change. But as you so correctly point out, Christiana, uh, the governments are actually coming back next year in 2020 and they're showing their upgraded ambitions. So that's when we have to look towards government leadership. As you say, this year it was uh, really so many other actors that could have been celebrated and, and the media message is a bit confused. So it
0: it sort of strikes me and this kind of gets a little bit to um you know to what we might talk about how we're going to use the beginning of 2020. Um but there there has been such a such a difference in a sort of theory of change in the people concerned with how we make progress on climate change since the days that you and I were at the heart of this Christian. I mean you know, in, in 2015 and before, and you were, you know, central to instigating this approach, there was a very broad tent and there was the the underlying philosophy that bring what you can, you know, make a start, have progress, make, you know, momentum is more important than perfection. Once you make some progress, then that will engender more progress, et cetera, et cetera. We enter this positive cycle of more and more ambition. I think now, you know, there's real anger that has emerged on the streets that is now uh, you know, has reached such a level, which is amazing that it's happened, and it's really elevated this issue so far, that has now affecting these international processes as well, and and with that, there is less tolerance for that iterative approach. There's more like, well, is it enough? Is it uniting behind the science? Is it sufficient? And I feel like you know that's a kind of different tactic, and I see a lot of people struggling with their sort of theory of how we change the world as to which of those we should pursue. I think it would be an interesting thing for us to try and unpick in a bit more detail next year. If anyone's listening to this and this strikes a chord or this is something that they'd like to talk to us about or explore, we kind of see this this dichotomy between outrage and optimism. We've always felt it kind of needs to be both. Um, But sometimes it can seem a bit either or. So... I think that would be an interesting era for us to explore in a couple of episodes at the beginning of next year. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if, if viewers, uh, listeners, I should say, sorry, <laughs> have, because uh, well, we're on video so we can see each other. Uh, if listeners would like to send in their own high resolution uh, commentary uh, with ideas or comments that they want to make, if you can keep it relatively short, we may well be able to share them with our with the whole You know, audience. What do you think, Christiana? Is this a good idea?
1: No, I think it's it's definitely something that we should um, dedicate some time and certainly our own thought, but uh, but also um, fertilize our own thinking with the wisdom from other people. Um, We have always had a a theory of change, and um, and because the consequences are so huge, and time is every day shorter. I think we have the obligation of having that theory of change constantly under review, yeah. And um, and really being very frank and honest with ourselves about well, so you know, well, are we still on the right track? We are definitely way way behind schedule, but that doesn't mean we are in the wrong track necessarily. So those are the two things that I think we you know we need to um, to separate out. One is the speed of change, and the other is the direction. Um, And how are we influencing both of those factors and what is the best way to influence those factors? So, yeah, I I think it would be a very good idea, and let's spend some time over Christmas in which we're going to be offline thinking about how do we reach out to other um, wise people who could volunteer to, um, to, to do some collective wisdom here.
0: Okay, gr- great. I, uh, that'll be really interesting. And, and we should bear in mind, you know, I mean, I think many people maybe listening to this are feeling disappointed by what happened in Madrid, but we should bear in mind, you know, this is the end of the year. And actually, it's been a remarkable year in many ways, you know, I mean, the level of which in which the world is waking up to climb, I mean, the political narrative, there are some really challenging leaders in place. But there is also an amazing amount of ambition from the The strikers on the streets to civil disobedience to more ambition from corporations and investors have come a long way this year. I think we are, we're finding, we're beginning to find out if we're serious about dealing with this. And yes, we need to be realistic. We need to face the reality of where we are. But these are the years in which we can dive in. And, you know, future generations will look at this and think, my God, you know, they lived at the fulcrum of these important issues. This is our chance to make a difference. Um... And it's Christmas.
2: Well, it's, it's the holiday season. Am I still allowed to say holiday season? You yeah, can I think only I am. say that. Okay. So I, oh God, I'm sorry about my Christmas there. Yeah, well, no, I mean, there's been a bit of a kind of back and forth between the left and the right. But, like, happy holiday season, everyone. Although we've had a bit of a negative discussion at the start, maybe it's been a realistic one. Maybe that's helpful. Maybe that's positive. Who knows? But we have a wonderful interview with the most extraordinary and, and, and buoyant individual. Uh, and certainly I was delighted when I heard this interview because it inspired me completely.
1: And who is this individual?
0: Um, so, so Richard Curtis is, is an is an amazing man and an incredible sort of entrepreneurial individual who is best known, of course, for his work uh, as a screenwriter and director. Um, he's known primarily for the amazing romantic comedies Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary, Love Actually, etc., etc. He created Blackadder and Mr. Bean for those who can whose memories drift back that far. But he's always been more than that. He's always been a big campaigner. He actually was one of the co-creators of comedy relief, which is a huge deal in the UK. He's a founder of Make Poverty History. He organized a Live 8 concert with Bob Geldof to highlight and publicize poverty, particularly in Africa, and pressure G8 leaders into doing something about it. He also, and I think this is what part of his, you know, one of his biggest legacies in a way, through his initiative Project Everyone, they engaged with the UN in 2015 and took the 17 SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, and branded them in a way that came up with these unbelievable colour palettes that define them, the little icons, the wheel that everybody's seen. That was all the work of Richard and his team that have taken what would have largely been a somewhat unnoticed UN document and made it iconic and communicated it to the world. So um, we sat down with Richard, actually, it was a couple of of months ago now. We were all in New York together, and uh, we had this fantastic conversation with him that was full of optimism and hope about how we can change the world. Let's hear it.
1: Well, Richard, what what a delight and what an honor that you take some time in this very, very busy week uh, to spend some time with... Outrage and optimism. Yeah, this and is my
3: holiday from the week. This is your <laughs> holiday. I've been looking forward to this <laughs> okay. before, are you here for forty-eight out, hours. For the outrage or the optimism? Oh, I'm, I, I tend to be stronger on the on the latter.
1: Yes, yeah. we know, we know. Yeah. But um, are there some things out there that are sort of balancing it out for you? More outrageous?
3: Um, well, I don't know. I, you see, my optimism is based on being fundamentally outraged as it were so my whole yeah, we like that. Uh, my whole career is really based on a trip you know I did to Ethiopia in 1985 during the famine and I saw things there that were so brutal, people suffering things that, you know, were beyond belief, that it just sent me back. Mm. And then my instant reaction was to try and do something optimistic and interesting, which was setting up Red Nose Day and Comic Relief. Yeah. So I've always been in the business of saying we've got to try and make things that entertain and engage people with the stuff that we can do, rather than necessarily talking always about the things by which we're outraged. but. I mean, I saw a lot of outrage on the climate march yesterday and I I was absolutely thrilled.
1: Yeah, it was thrilling. You've you've been at this, you know, if we draw this broadly, uh, which is uh, human rights, uh, quality of human life. You've been at this for such a long time, Richard. uh, And I want to take you back to End Poverty uh, and your immense push on that one. where are you with that now? And do you see any parallel in the trajectory that that has had over the decades and where we are on other issues such as climate or, in fact, such as all of the SDGs?
3: Yeah. Well, it's been an interesting journey, and particularly in the context of this, because you you know a bit about climate. <laughs> um i uh, still learning uh, you know i uh first i took 32 years off and did absolutely nothing so i should assure your listeners that if they've never done one thing for for charity or the state of the world it's never too late to start um and then in 85 i uh set up Comet Relief, and that was a fundraising organization. Mm. And then I realized in 2000 with the Jubilee Debt campaign that, you know, my feeling of passion on all these issues should be applied to a bigger political canvas. Mm -hmm. And so 2005 was when we had a G7 in the U.K., and we set up Make Poverty History and we did the live eight concerts. Mm-hmm. And that was in order to create a new urgency and to, you know, we were trying to double aid and cancel debt. Mm. Uh, so we're in exactly the same position with regard to the exactly, SDGs yeah. now. Here we are, 2020s, slow starting. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, there are many differences and many things the same. The most interesting difference is I remember in 2004, the climate guy walking out of our, Meeting when we decided that it would be debt aid trade, not debt aid trade and climate, because we thought it was too complicated a message. Uh-huh. We didn't think that the politicians were at the 2005. point. It was two thousand and five. That was two thousand and five. Yeah, because you thought that message wouldn't cut through or wasn't kind of compelling
0: enough for people to get behind. No, I,
3: I think it just wasn't in a funny way known enough, and right. and also just in their minds, people hadn't seen it people and planet and that the two things are absolutely inextricable yes Mm -hmm. so we thought just for simple communication things you'd be talking all the stuff about poverty and need and health Mm -hmm. and all of that and then you'd say oh by the way we're a bit worried about the climate as well yeah
1: it was sort of too Um, far away
3: yeah um and also the sort of sense that the two were interlocked i'm sure the people who were fighting for climate wasn't there wasn't there really right uh, so, uh, you know, it's very, the STGs were, you know, an extraordinary piece of work because mm. they linked together inequality and extreme poverty and climate. So as it were in taking them on, I took on the mantle of climate as well. And here we are in 2020 fighting for all three, mm. but with the same challenge that uh, there is a you know, we, there is an amazing plan, just like the MDGs real plan. It's more, we're a great plan. It's a, it's, it's more comprehensive, and it's more of a crisis. And the main crisis bit would seem to be about climate, but everything that happens on climate hits women, hits the poor, um, and everything so interwoven. they're completely linked. Yeah. Know?
1: Um, Tell us about Project Everyone, because uh, you have such an extraordinary ability, Richard, to do two things. One is to tell compelling stories that really educate and move people, but also to visually, visually organize our brains. So tell us about Project Everyone. Well,
3: when, you know, what my worry, because I've sometimes seen the UK government come up with good policies, and then I've attended... The announcement of those life-changing policies, and it's a dismal room, and without, nobody with understands. Four Sybilserv <laughs> and four, um, yeah, four yeah. guys looking at their watches, saying, "Why did they get stuck with this when mm-hmm. I could be reporting on a murder?" So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I just didn't want that to happen. So yeah. we came to the uh, UN and said, "Let's make graphics." I worked on those with a wonderful Swedish designer. We we shortened the name to hmm. try and, because they had slightly longer names. And that was the famous wheel, right? The yeah. yeah, and yeah, then yeah, we yeah. came up with a single yeah. wheel graphic. Uh, well, but
1: before the wheel, it was the little icons. Yeah. And you yeah. put right. the icons yeah, together. Yeah, we put the, the icons. Yeah. Because I think everybody said no one will ever un- remember a list of 17 yeah. things. Yeah. And you came up with the idea of let's have icons, let's have them color coded, and then let's put them around a circle. Yeah,
3: exactly. That was mm-hmm. the plan. And then, you know, that year we did a big projection on the UN building explaining right. them. Uh, I worked with Global Citizen to bend their concert. We got the BBC to get that concert broadcast in 80 countries or something. And we realized there is a job to do here in communicating. And it's, it's, I mean, Project Everyone is now doing a huge number of things, um, particularly working with Bill and Melinda Gates on their goalkeepers. Um, but I've always, in a way, thought about it as... as what happens with my movies and the people who market them because mm. I make these you know complicated to me movies they last two hours They're everything about I care about every frame and these bastards you know <laughs> issue a poster <laughs> with a picture not even from the movie a slogan I didn't write and then a trailer which gives away the whole plot um, And but that's what I'm trying to do right for the, the SDGs. SDGs you're you trying know? to get even with yeah, that yeah, and that. actually you know I'm even keen on calling it global goals not sdg so yeah, yeah. you know yeah. uh, that is as i fight right, about yeah. i used to fight about the names of my of my movies like crazy they wanted to call four weddings and a funeral rolling in the aisles i think was the suggestion <laughs> i got from polygram um because they said nobody likes funerals and only women like weddings so no one's going to come and see your your movie how
1: wrong they were (laughs) a
3: few (laughs) Um, but uh, so yeah so I'm just endlessly trying to make short films trying to create Uh, you know, things in the real world. We've got a thing called World's Largest Lesson, which is a, you know, being taught in schools in 100 countries about all the goals. Uh, And now we're working next year on data clocks, which we hope are going to be big sort of works of art that will go up in public places. And then I'm trying to wrangle all the information and data into 10 possibly famous bits of data, you know, as it were, it would be how much plastic Mm. there is, how much pollution there is, how Mm. many women are dying in childbirth, things that people can grasp. So they're not looking at the 167 targets of the goals, but they're saying those 10, they look like the whole world and then I want those to become famous. So it's all about trying to Mm. simplify, explain and engage people's passions. Mm.
1: Richard, do you think that um, educating us and uh, making very compelling arguments graphically and and with narration, is that going to change my behavior? That's the piece that I still have not been able to figure out. Why when I understand something and why when it is explained to me and I even believe in it and everything, and I still don't change my behavior?
3: Well, look, every time I've ever tried anything, I've always thought I'm going up the whole staircase, as it were, you know. I'm going to make the greatest romantic comedy of all time. Uh, we make Bridget Jones too you know know what I mean So, and then you realise you've gone up a few steps so the truth of the matter is you do your bit you identify I mean you identify and do a massive thing but you know you do your bit and you hope that it just nudges people in a direction so I am noticing on the do front that suddenly my kids you know are starting to talk about how much meat there is in the diet starting to talk about the electric cars starting to criticise us on planes and I think suddenly the behavioral thing. And this generation is actually impatient in a way with the mm-hmm. kind of charity and communication mm-hmm. right. I do. They actually want to do so. So I think yeah. we're going to have a slight recalibration of how people think they have to act. And that will include their personal behavior. And then you're suddenly-and yeah. you're suddenly <laughs> yeah. getting to the point where um, Paul Polman said a very clever thing to me. He said, CSR is turning into. RSC, from corporate social responsibility, small charitable initiatives to responsible social corporations. Nice. You know, to actually corporations that realize they've Mm. got to embody everything that they believe in in the things they actually do Hmm. and i think consumer power and actually action and we're about to launch a big campaign about pensions just called make my money matter be proud of your pension find out where your pension money is a third of the investment in the world all that belongs to us Yes. Um, so I think, you know, this is the decade for people not only changing the way that they behave, but using the way that they behave to change the behaviour, particularly of businesses, yeah. mm-hmm. and using the way they vote and the arguments that businesses make to governments, we need more support, if we're going to do renewable energy, yeah. you know, things like that. So uh, I think we might be at a turning point where people mm-hmm. aren't willing to just say, make poverty history, you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they Which actually want to do it themselves. Yeah.
0: And I'm curious to know because you I mean you're a professional storyteller as much as anything, right? And you've told stories through movies, through all sorts of things, and now you're telling these big stories around the goals. But there's also the stories that are kind of naturally emerging from the movement with the youth on the streets are quite dark, right? They've they've taken something of a dark turn. Yeah. You know, your your you know movies are about love, and the, go, the you know the goals are about kind of telling these positive stories of what we can create. What do you think about that? What do you think it does? Do you think it's effective?
3: Well, there's always been a mix. If you watch yeah. the Comet Relief show, which is our show on the BBC for fundraising, the the films we make for appeals are really tough, right? you know, and they're yeah. sandwiched between comedy, but they themselves are to do with, yeah. you know, really hard things, be it, you know, gangs in the UK or domestic violence mm. or famine and Ebola, you know. So I've, I've all, I, I do think that there's always a place for mm. outrage yeah uh, i if i ever go to a meeting and i leave that meeting and i've i never said anything that slight has been emotional i think oh god that's just like someone coming in. Time. Yeah. Yeah. someone <laughs> coming in to sell them a slightly better part for their car you know um and i think you know human beings can't be angry all the time mm. and so you know at the march a lot of people were having a lot of fun, yeah. and actually, I had a meeting with Extinction Rebellion in the UK the other day. Hmm. They were a cheerful lot. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're intending to entirely disrupt the whole of London in a week's time. Having fun, but they were perky it. about it. Right? Right. You know, so <laughs> uh, the truth of the matter is, I think you have to, um, you know, you have to feel that passion. I would, in a way, say passion, and and rather than outrage in many cases but mm. the passion may be inspired by a feeling of outrage but i think that there you know it's it's a crucial constituent factor mm. Mm.
1: a lot of energy pent up there actually that no. can be very usefully channeled
3: yeah and also general you know spike who mainly my 15 year old who mainly exercised his passion on arguing about his bedtime is now going uh, on these strikes and arguing about the future of the planet. So it's, yeah. it's, it's quite a good diversion tactic for us parents, yeah. I would say.
0: And how do you see, because, you know, we're at a very interesting time now, you know, the Secretary General Summit is happening and we've kind of got 15 months through till the end of next year and yeah. there's so much is happening over the course of the next year around yeah. climate, around biodiversity, around a whole range of other things. How do, you, how do you see the next 15 months and how we get to a point of success on climate and on these other
1: things, so so many people are calling it super year.
3: Yeah, well, I absolutely believe that's it. I'm a great believer in a deadline. Otherwise, I would never have written anything, right? Uh, you know, so I think it's really important, and I think the UN is stepping up and has to step up to the mark of making 2020 as important a year on all these issues as 2019 uh, and I think there are a lot of incredibly important meetings, you know, from Garvey to COP Yeah, uh, and I hope they'll be starting to feel the heat. Uh, I also think you'll, you do accelerate things by a deadline, you know, I haven't, I haven't been able to get this, I haven't been able to get good real-time data mm. out of anybody in the five years I've been waiting. And now I've really gone to them and said, well, what do we know? And they said, well, actually, we know deforestation. We know electricity. Mm. Uh, we know the number of women in government. You know, we actually know these in real time. So I think it focuses the mind. Yeah. Uh, and I hope that it, it, it'll be an incredibly noisy year from every aspect. And what I'm yeah. sort of saying to people who are fighters and passionate about stuff is do what you're always doing and then give the goals 10%. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? If you're fighting for amnesty, link it to the goals. If you're, if you're fighting for domestic violence, link it to the goals. And a lot of that's to do with, again, poverty, inequality, if you're worried about gangs in your streets, that's an issue of poverty as well. So I think that I'm hoping big connections will be made and it won't, You know, we'll think back on it as quite super year (laughs) uh, rather than super year. But I genuinely think, and you'll have a generation of politicians who start to realize that this is one of the key messages they absolutely have to talk about. Otherwise, young voters will not really identify with them. They've got to have some sense of, you know, politicians have a dreadful habit of actually trying to solve the problems of their 20s when they get into power in their 50s. (laughs) Uh, And we have to speed them up.
1: Well, and the pressure of young people is certainly on political leaders, also on corporates, um, because the best and the brightest minds don't want to work for corporations that are still being irresponsible. So it's a very, very interesting pressure of accountability to both the public and the private sector. Look,
3: it's really great. And the big shock of the goals is the way they've been adopted by business and they're of interest mm. to business again. I had some terrible meetings in 2005 with old men in suits, which I have become, um, you know, and they thought we were left-wing extremists and they had nothing to do with poverty abroad, as it were. And now it's a different story because actually businesses are used to long-term planning and used to pleasing their consumers. And
1: and they don't dare not ascribe to the SDGs.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, good. And, and I had a, but also it's starting to, feed into the fabric. So I had a very interesting meeting with the Bank of England the other day and they said we've been assessing risk. And we think the three big risks to company now are not a bad third quarter. It's one, the SDGs are about long-term thinking and if you have short-term thinking you're in trouble. Mm. Two, people don't want to work for companies with no purpose and also the consumers don't want to buy from companies that have no purpose. And third, the risk is now in being caught. Actually, he said the bad guys are getting caught. You know, Volkswagen get caught. Facebook get caught not doing their job properly. And in fact, if you want to go for someone who's purpose-driven and sorted it out, and you will get better returns on your money. And I think that's a whole area that is starting to ignite. Mm-hmm. And every individual action, you know, every pair of Allbirds shoes that you buy um, will make a Makes bit a difference. of a difference. Makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Probably one last
0: question, just because we're... Thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, as a, as a storyteller and as someone who thinks about how to communicate these stories, what kinds of stories do you tell yourself about the future?
3: About the future that your kids will live in, your grandkids will live in? Well, I, you know, I'm very obsessed by the, you know, interconnectivity of the goals. So, as it were taking the optimistic story, Hmm. you see a world in which women are better paid and digitally connected and have their own rights. And you think of the amount of extra money that there'll be in the world um, because of those things. Therefore, you think, actually, a whole lot could fall into place. You know, Hmm. I've been very excited on, you know, all the things to do with energy about the moment that becomes the prime economy, how much money there is in there, I was talking to some investment bankers the other day, and they've just invested in people who fix wind farms. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? They, if they oh, stop wow. going I'm round, they don't, if they stop going around, and another like company Spain's who supply, supply fresh vegetables into half of Britain's schools. So, right. what I'm right. hoping is that the interconnectivity, which we now connect with sort of sorrow and suffering, you're saying because of climate change in Syria, people move to the city, the war breaks up, all mm. that sort of thing, that that goes into reverse that you suddenly actually find that things are working positively that when clothes check their supply chains then you improve the conditions and the wages in the countries where those things are made and suddenly you get financial prosperity so and more jobs yeah mm. and more jobs so that's the way I like to look at the future which is that yeah. the things that we've been saying are joint sorrows become joint benefits when they're mm-hmm. when they're solved Love it, but you know I'm I, I have a optimistic outlook, and and I think well I you're have, in good
2: company. But also, here. <laughs> I have,
3: you know, we have cause when President Obama spoke at Goalkeepers, he said, you know, nobody could deny that today would be the best day ever to be born. Yeah, in terms of and child mortality, in yeah. terms of disease, still everything true. like that. And of course, climate is the one thing which could really reverse that. So we need because then the world in which we're living won't welcome. Uh, that that is true, Richard, yeah.
1: but addressing climate in a timely fashion makes that statement even more true. Yeah, yeah. Because we can create a much better world than we even have right now. Yeah. We have that choice.
3: Yeah, exactly. I'm... I tell you, if ever I get gloomy, I'll I'll ring you up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you could you could you can, you can cheer me up. <laughs> Brilliant! Thank you so much. Yes, Not at thank all. You. Appreciate thank you. It. Very it's much for thank you pleasure, and thank you for time. what you do. It's so amazing because I've been fighting as it were on the other side of the barricades, and the passion and commitment and imagination of people who you know are fighting for everything and focusing on climate is 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 such a relief for a father like me.
1: Well, we do it so for our you. children and for all other children. Yes. Well,
3: except Spike's got one or two nasty friends. I don't mind. If they, <laughs> I, I don't mind if they get lost in there. <laughs> there we go. In the flow. Um, great.
1: Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much.
0: Cool. So that was a great chat with Richard. Uh, any fo- any fo-
2: Any follow-up from you guys? Any feedback? Well, I just... You know, uh, I have to say that branding of the SDGs was absolutely stunning. I spent 11 years in that industry and talk about playing a blinder and using, you know, the visual communications to elevate something to another level. That is legendary alongside all his other unbelievable achievements.
0: Okay, so um, guys, before we drop off for Christmas and then we're going to be away, so just to be very clear, we are going to take a bit of a break over Christmas and into January. Um, Our normal scheduled service of outrage and optimism will resume towards the end of January.
2: For those of you who haven't listened to all our back catalogue, this is a great opportunity for you to catch up on all the brilliant interviews we've done in the past. There's loads of them there, so if you haven't heard them all, give them a listen.
0: Thank you very much. Good idea. Um, So our normal scheduled service will resume towards the end of January. Uh, We may drop a couple of things in in January we're just working on a few different ideas such as we hinted at earlier in terms of where we are theories of change other things but those will be forthcoming in January if we're able to pull them together in time otherwise we will rejoin you towards the end of January before we sign off we have a piece of very exciting news to share with you which is
1: da, 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 da. Indeed. [trumpet sound] trumpet sound <laughs>
0: trumpet sounds and it has nothing to do with the book called we future the future we choose <laughs> coming out in
2: February everyone be delighted <laughs> <a last> <laughs>
0: Um, the piece of news is that our good friend Clay Carnell and his partner Ray have had a baby. Oh. So baby Emrys was born a few days ago, little boy to very happy parents in Detroit. Welcome to the world. It's Welcome a great, to the beautiful, wonderful
2: world. You're gonna have a great life mm-hmm. and we're gonna make such a positive impact on the world. Third planet from the sun, all the chemical reactions are going, you know, fantastic biota, what can I say? So much to do. So much to gain, so much to give. <laughs>
1: So welcome to the little one and congratulations to the um, new, happy and exhausted parents.
2: (laughs) The exhaustion
0: is just beginning. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much for listening. This has been the year in which we have launched Outrage and Optimism. We've had such a good time. We've loved doing this. Thank you for for joining us and coming on this journey. We're looking forward to a consequential and exciting 2020 in which we're going to change the world. Have a great holiday season. We'll see you next year. Bye for
2: now. Bye okay so that is a wrap on 2019 on behalf of the team here we want to thank you
0: again for listening this year we've enjoyed working to bring you the podcast and have really cherished all of your kind words your love and your support so thank you thank you thank you for that And even though this episode is the final episode for 2019, we have some big things planned for you in 2020. So enjoy the rest of your holidays, a happy new year to you, and we will be back right here in your feed in January.
1: We'll see you then.